I'm going to read a bunch of scriptures this morning, probably more than uh, or quicker than you'll be able to keep up. But I want to encourage you to write these scriptures down and, and take the time to look them up at a later date to get these things down on the inside of your heart. Acts chapter 11, verse 14 speaks of Paul going down to Cornelius' house because Cornelius had a vision and, and direction from God to send for Peter. And recounting the story, Peter says that Cornelius was told by the angel these things, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. In Acts chapter 5, in verse 20, after they're delivered from the jail by the angel of the Lord, the angel says to Peter and John, go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Acts chapter 14, speaking of Paul's missionary journey, he said, and there in Lystra they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak. What did Paul speak? Words. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. Now the point I'm trying to get to, folks, is that the Bible says people are saved by words. The people in Cornelius' household were saved by the hearing of words. We know also that the Holy Ghost fell on them when, when, uh, in Acts chapter 10 when Peter went down to Cornelius' house. So people are, healed, are filled with the Holy Ghost by words. Here in Acts chapter 14 where it talks about in his, uh, Paul's missionary journey to Lystra, it says that the crippled man, the impotent man in his feet leaped and walked because he heard Paul speak words. Words govern everything. Now, I want to read some scriptures to you real quickly from some uh, several different sources. And again, this is probably where you're not going to be able to keep up. Max, Matthew chapter 12, verse 35, a good man out of the good treasure or deposit of his heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure or deposit of his heart bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you, Jesus said, that every idle word that man shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words... Thou art justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, it says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 23, it says, Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his souls from troubles. Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles. Now, folks, a modern-day paraphrase of that verse, and it's, it's certainly an accurate thought or premise. The Bible is telling you that most of the trouble you're going to encounter in life are going to be because you brought it on yourself. Hallelujah. Thank you for the good news. Hey, it is what it is. Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles. You know, James said, James chapter 3, I believe it is about verse 2, 
He says, the man that's able to control his tongue can control his whole body. Well, obviously, he's talking about words. Here's another one. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. It says, there is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. It's not just an Old Testament thing. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter writes to the church and says, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Loving life and seeing good days has to do has everything to do with the words you speak. Now I want you to turn back with me to Numbers chapter thirteen. I hope you know what this story is. It's one of the um, well, I don't know if it's right to say foundational stories or, or about the Bible, but to me it is. There are certain stories in the Bible that, that are given to us that everything else need, seems to hang on or revolve around. This is one of those. Now, while you're turning, I'll remind you that in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, concerning the story of creation, God said, let us make man in our own image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the earth. Well, the only thing that we know about God up until that point Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, the only thing we know about God up to that point is that he's created the universe with words. So when the Bible says that God's plan was to make us after his image and in his likeness, the original scriptures, the words themselves mean an exact duplicate in kind. The only thing we've got to go on or to understand that God made us like himself to be at that point in time is a spirit being that speaks words to exercise authority and dominion. That's all we know about God at that point when it tells us the purpose of man's creation. Now, Numbers chapter 13 tells us about how that God had brought the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt through many signs and wonders. There were the ten plagues in Egypt, you remember. Finally, Pharaoh, things got so hot, and he was under such pressure after the death of his firstborn and the death of all the firstborn males in Egypt. He finally relented and let him go, let Israel go. But then he changed his mind and came out after him for the purpose of destroying the whole nation of people. You remember the story how that Moses parted the Red Sea and they came over on dry ground and how that the waters came back together again and drowned the Egyptian army when they followed in after him. Now, sometime later, probably two and a half years later, They come to the edge of the promised land. And it tells us how Moses sent spies, one man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, to spy out the land, to see what was there. And it says that they came back. We'll start reading in Numbers chapter 13, verse 25. And they returned, the 12 spies returned from the land after 40 days, from searching the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran, to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, we came into the land, whether you sent us 
And surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. And then identifies the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites throughout the land. Verse 30, and Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying. I want you to notice the the place of words in this story. The importance of the words that are spoken. Let me just make this comment so I make sure not to forget it. Everybody in this story, from the greatest to the least, gets exactly what they said. Every one of them. So they brought up an evil report of the land under the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the son of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. Chapter 14. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore has the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? And they said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. We've had enough of this Moses guy. We need to find somebody that will take us back to Egypt where we were having a fine time being slaves. That's what it means, isn't it? Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto them and to all the country, company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. And if the Lord delight in us, then he'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only only rebel ye not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? Now the only thing they've done made a decision based on what they saw and spoke about that decision how long will I will these people provoke me and how long will it be before they believe me that's all God wanted was was for them to believe me how long will it be before they believe me for all the signs which I have showed unto them I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and make of thee Moses a greater nation and mightier than they Now, folks, I'm I'm not through with the story, certainly. There's more to the story than just what we've read. And I want to go into a little bit more detail about it than what we normally do. I usually just refer to this story to make a a point about the importance of your words and 
speaking words of faith and so forth. And, and that's certainly the point of the story. But I want you to notice some things. God realizes that everybody's seen the same thing. See, the difference isn't what people saw. Caleb and Joshua saw the same thing in the promised land that the, 12, that the 10 did. The majority did. He saw the walls around the city. He saw the strength of their armies. He saw everything just, they saw everything just exactly the same way as the 10 did. But they chose to speak something different than the rest of the group. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, I want you to notice at the end of the 13th chapter how that the majority, the 10 of the 12 spies, everybody except Caleb and Joshua, said it is a land that destroys the inhabitants. The land will overcome us. We saw ourselves as grasshoppers, and that's the way that they saw us too. There's something that the Lord spoke to my heart just a few days ago that keeps ringing over and over and over again on the inside of me. I focused a lot on stuff that the Bible says about the end times, the conditions of the world concerning the end, because I think we're the generation that will see Jesus come back. But every generation before us has thought they were the ones too. So I'm cautiously optimistic. (laughs) I want to be prepared for not being the generation that sees Jesus come. I I can't from Scripture see how that's possible. But I want to be ready if we're not. And I think that's the way the Bible instructs us to be. Ready for Jesus to come, but continuing in the work until he gets here. Occupy until he comes. Well, one of the things that... um, that intrigued me about what the Holy Ghost said to me just this week. He said this. He said, when the devil can make you lose your objectivity, that's the first step into deception. I've never thought about it. I'm not that smart to come up with that, folks. But it's exactly the truth. Everything that happens to you, the devil tries to magnify how bad it's going to be. He tells you a headache is a brain tumor. Stub your toe real good until the nail falls off of it. He'll tell you they're going to have to amputate. (laughs) And in every situation, he always paints the worst picture. Why does he do that? Because he's trying to get you to lose your objectivity. Because it's hardly ever anything like he says it's going to be. Hardly ever. Very rarely does it turn out to be worse Or as bad as he says it's going to be. But when you lose your objectivity. Now the Bible gives us some scriptures to stand on. So that we won't lose our objectivity. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 says. There is no temptation taken you. But such as is common to man. The devil's all the time trying to tell you. That you're a special situation. Other people may have been delivered. And other people may have seen God's word work for them. But this is different because of whatever. But the Bible says there's no temptation, test, trial, or adversity that has come unto you. But that which is common to man. The devil works the same way in everybody. That's why we can see what brought victory to people in the scriptures. And walk in that same example and experience that same victory. Because it's all the same. The devil doesn't have anything new. He's not creating new ways to destroy people. He's only got one thing and that's deception. 
But as that scripture says, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says everything that the devil does and will do against you is common unto man. But God always makes a way for you to escape. The scripture from the King James says, but God will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you're able. Well, if we think about that, just according to that scripture and not delving a little bit deeper into the character and the nature of God, it sounds like God and the devil are working together against you. If God's not going to let you experience something more than what you're able to overcome, well, what you're able to overcome might be different than what I'm able to overcome or vice versa. So it kind of paints the picture in my mind that God's got the devil on the leash like a a, a rabid dog. And he'll let the devil get close enough to nip at your heels, but not chew off your leg. Well, gee, thanks, God. That just makes me feel so close to you. But that's impossible, folks. God and the devil are not working together. And God is not controlling what the devil does against you. He's not the one that that controls that whatsoever. Well, if everything that the devil does against every one of us has a means or a way of escape, then what does that tell us about our ability to withstand temptation? Folks, that scripture is is intended. It doesn't do very well in the King James translation. But it's intended to tell you that the power of God that you have in you through the word in the name of Jesus can whip anything and overcome anything the devil has got. God's not individually looking at your situation and saying, well, okay, we need to tweak this a little bit here so that they're able to get through. You're able to get through because Jesus died for you. You're able to get through because you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. You're able to get through because the word of God never fails. So God didn't have to do anything to make sure you can make it. He's already made sure that you can make it. Well, if we lose that part of our objectivity, then we can slip into deception. Well, in that case, using that verse of scripture, a lot of people seem to have the idea that God is somehow, some way going to do something in the future, hopefully the near future. But he's got to do something or something, some way or somehow so that you can uh, come through victorious. And God's not going to do anything. He's already made you victorious by the word of God. He's already made you a victor, more than a conqueror, an overcomer, through the price that Jesus has already paid. Jesus is not going to shed one more drop of blood so that you can make it. But see, if you focus on things, questions that the devil brings... Like if the word was going to work, why hadn't it worked already? Then you come up with the idea that God is withholding something. Now the church has taught us for hundreds of years that God withholds things to teach us something. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says the only way God teaches us, the only way he disciplines us, the only way he trains us is through his word. Not through circumstance or adversity. The Bible says God cannot tempt anybody with evil and sickness and tragedy is evil. So God's not in that part of the, the business. That's all the work of the devil who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But it's real easy, especially if you've been standing in faith for a while about something. It's real easy to come to the place where you're thinking, maybe not even consciously, 
but where you're thinking that God's not doing something that he should be doing. That's the place where you've lost objectivity. The fact is, the simple fact is, and the simple fact for every one of us, is that there's a real devil in the world that wants to destroy you. But God's not worried about that because he knows what he put on the inside of you. He knows that if you just act on what he gave you, you'll come through victoriously. When we lose that picture of the power of God that's available to us through his word in the name of Jesus, then you'll come to the point where you start blaming God and holding him responsible for the evil that the devil's doing in your life. And that's deception. Do you understand what I'm saying? These 10 spies lost objectivity. They started comparing themselves against the enemy. Well, that never was the issue, was it? I mean, they just experienced some pretty neat miracles that shows that it wasn't them and their power that conquered the greatest army on the face of the earth, which was the Egyptian army. But they're not thinking about that. Their choice. They're choosing to think contrary to that because of the strength of the enemy that they saw. So what happens? God says to Moses, Moses, step back. I'm going to wipe these people out. And I'm going to start over with you. Now, realize what God is offering Moses. God's offering Moses to be the Abraham of his offspring. Hundreds of years before, God told Abraham, I'll make you to be the father of many nations. Your seed will be like the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. So great that you can't even number them. Well, even in captivity, they've multiplied to almost 7 million people. And God says, step back to Moses. He says, step back, Caleb and Joshua too. I'm going to wipe these people out and start over with you. That's a pretty big offer. Not to mention Moses, by that point in time, is over 80 years old. And God says, I'll let you be the source the origin of my people. He's offering him the same thing that he offered Abraham when Abraham was 100 years old and had the child. Sarah was 90. That's exactly the same offer, folks. But I want you to notice what Moses does. Moses steps back and says, now, that would be okay, but the nations of the earth would see and hear about what you've done. And they'd say the reason that you did it, the reason that you wiped them out is because you weren't able to bring them into the fullness of the promised land. So Moses' first concern is not about himself. He doesn't stop and say, now wait a minute, let me think this through. Lord, can I sleep on it? He immediately starts up and says, that wouldn't be good for you or me either one. The other nations of the world would say, you're not strong enough to bring to fulfillment the promise you made unto your children. And then Moses says this, beginning in verse 17 of Numbers chapter 14. Moses says, and now I beseech you, let the power of my Lord be great. God just offered 
to wipe the children of Israel out because of their unbelief. But Moses said, let the power of my Lord be great according as you have spoken. Saying the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and by no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto a third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech you, Moses says, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of your mercy. And as thou hast forgiven these people from Egypt, even until now. Now, I want you to notice again what he says in verse 17 and 18. He talks about the power of God. Now, when we think about the power of God, usually when we talk about the power of God, we're talking about a healing, we're talking about a miracle, we're talking about some sign or some wonder that we can step back and say, wow. But notice that Moses talks about the power of God unto long-suffering. Moses says it takes God's great power to be great in mercy and forgive. And to put up with people that are rebellious. Now you know what happens at the end of this story. They go into the wilderness and spend 40 years there. I wonder. The Bible never says anything about it. But I just wonder how many times during that 40 years. Moses steps back and says I should have let him go. I should have let God wipe these people out. All they've done is murmured and complained. All they've been is a headache to me. Maybe I made the wrong choice. But Moses never stopped being long-suffering toward the people either. So what does Israel do? Well, God gives Moses some instruction. Verse 20, the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. In other words, he says, Moses, I've forgiven them just because you said so. I have pardoned according to your word, but as truly as I live... God says, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now, this is a a phrase. We've talked about it before, but you may not be aware of it. Maybe you weren't here or whatever. The phrase, as truly as I live, is oftentimes, it seems to me, looked at as just kind of a filler statement. But God's really saying something here. He says, as truly as I live. Well, think about that for a minute. How truly does God live? It's talking about his character. It's talking about his nature. It's talking about his goodness. When he says, as truly as I live, another translation says, but it is as the oracle of God, which means it's a never-changing law. It means it's eternal. And that's how God lives. God lives eternally. God lives without change, without even a hint of change. So when he says, when God says, as truly as I live, he's saying, mark this down. This will be and will always be, according to what I'm saying. Here he says, uses the phrase, as truly as I live, the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now that's as close as God can come to swearing by himself. That's as close as he can come to saying, here's how you know this is true. He swears by himself and says, as truly as I live, this is an eternal, unchanging thing. The glory of the Lord will fill the earth. The glory of the Lord will fill the earth. 
Now, the reason I pointed that out is because he says it again a little bit further down into the chapter. Notice verse 22. He said, because all these men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times. The ten times is reference to the ten spies that spoke against the Lord and against his word. Because all those men which have seen my miracles and my glory, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened unto my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. Now stop and think about this again, folks. They've all, all twelve of the spies have witnessed exactly the same things in Egypt. They saw the ten plagues. They saw the waters divide when Moses stretched out his hand across the waters. They saw the miracles that God did when Moses struck the rock and water came out. They've seen the miracles that were done in the early part of the wilderness journey where God purified poisonous waters and identified himself as the Lord that healeth thee. They've all seen the same things. What does that mean? God's problem with this, these ten is that they have not hearkened unto him. In other words, they didn't believe him. Caleb and Joshua did believe that because God said the land is yours, we can take it. So it's not seeing miracles that gives you faith. If it was, they would have believed. See, so many times people take the position, if I could just see a miracle, then I'd know. Well, you know what would happen if those people see a miracle? They'd have to see another one to wonder if the first one was real. (laughs) Because if you're not willing to believe God without seeing a miracle, you will never believe if you, even though you see one. God's word is not true because God did miracles. God's word is true because it's God's word. And that is the point. And so, folks, no matter what the situation is, when it comes to tithing, when it comes to giving, when it comes to believing for healing or peace or prosperity or, or family members coming back to the Lord, it's all the same thing. And that is you have to make a determination that God's word is true, period. No matter what example somebody wants to give you of them trying it and it not working, God's word is true because it's God's word. So he says, these 10 aren't going to see the land. Verse 24, but my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him. I love that. Literally, that means he was of another spirit. He wasn't of the spirit of doubt and unbelief. He was of the spirit of faith. Paul said we have that same spirit of faith that Jesus had, which would have to be this too. We believe and therefore we speak. The spirit of faith recognizes the importance of words. Words that people are saved by, words that people are filled by the Holy Ghost by, words that people are healed by, words that people are provided for by. Words govern your lives. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him or in him and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereunto he went and his seed shall possess it. Folks, I want you to understand something. Up until this point in time, we don't know anything about Caleb. 
except that he spoke up and said, God said it was ours so we can do it. That's all we know about the guy. And God calls that following him fully. Let's finish reading the story. Verse 25, now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the, in the valley. Tomorrow turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation? Now the congregation lifted up their voice and cried based on the testimony and the report of the ten. So the congregation is just as much in unbelief as the ten were. How long shall I bear with this evil generation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me. Now I want you to look at that word murmur. The word murmur literally means to complain. We understand that. We would figure that out on our own. But the root word that it comes from literally means to stop. So what we know what means what go means for Caleb and Joshua, their faith, their willingness to accept what God said, no matter what the enemy looks like, no matter how big the walls are around the city of Jericho. But because God's word says the land is ours, we're willing to take it. God can defeat these people who aren't even as strong as the Egyptian army that he's already defeated on our behalf. So that's faith. And faith is the equivalent of go. But murmuring, doubt and unbelief, complaining means to stop any and every good thing God has for you. It's so funny to me how some people who will say that we're arrogant by saying we can do it just because the Bible says we can do it. will take the position that, well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask the Lord why this or that didn't happen. I'll ask him why these things didn't work. Well, folks, you don't have to wait to get to heaven to find out the answer. According to the Bible, when we complain, we stop the blessings of God dead in his tracks. No point in blaming God for not coming through. Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue from evil keepeth his soul from troubles. That certainly fits here. So now God says to Moses, say unto them, verse 28, say unto them, here's this phrase again, as truly as I live, as truly as I live. Now, the first time he said as truly as I live, what verse was that? Um, 21. The first time he said as truly as I live, he said the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Anybody have any doubts about God bringing that to pass? He's swearing by himself. He's saying, this is the way it's going to be. Like it or not, this is the way it's going to be. The earth shall be filled with the glory of God. Now he says, this is how it's going to be too. Here's a principle that's just as eternal, just as unchanging. That's what he said before. Say unto them, as truly as I live. That means this is a principle for all time. It means it's a principle for every person. Say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, 
so will I do unto you. Folks, I want you to realize what that means. That means God's listening to what you have to say. It's not a matter of us just saying, well, we believe the word because God said it and God's going to make it come to pass no matter what, so we just want to hook up with him. You decide whether or not it works. You decide whether his blessings become yours. You decide through the words you speak. And he's listening for your words. He's not moving without hearing you talk. He doesn't even make his word come to pass until you say it's true. Now, it's just as true. The word's just as true for Caleb and Joshua as it was for the ten who wind up dying the next day. Again, all 12 saw the same thing. All 12 were tempted to believe they couldn't do it. Ten of them went one way with their words. Two of them said, we can do it because God said so. Say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. Folks, I'm delighted to tell you that every good thing I have in my life is because of what I've said. And that's true for you too. Well, Pastor Mike, my life doesn't look so great. I have a suggestion. Change what you're saying. Because what you have, whether you consider it to be good or not so good, is a result of what you've said. And God says, this is Old Testament stuff. Now, this is not some new idea. This isn't concocted by some charismatic preacher. The principle has always been, you're governed by your words. From Genesis 1, when he made Adam and Eve after his likeness and after his kind. From that point forward, and throughout all of eternity, your words matter. Well, we know what that means for the ones who went against him. Their carcasses shall fall in this wilderness and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number from 20 years old and upward, which have murmured against me. Doubtless you shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. <clears throat> but your little ones, which you said should be a prey. Remember, that's what, part of what they said. Why did God bring us out to this wilderness to be defeated and our children to, to die? Those that you called your, the, that would be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness. The words that God uses for body basically means meat sack. Carcasses. You don't consider a carcass to be a living thing. God's already counted them as dead because of what they said, not because of his will. We know what his will was. He's identified his will when he told Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, tell the people I'm taking you to the promised land. That's the will of God. These people have aborted the will of God. And it's not because they didn't know. They did know. They knew exactly what they were doing when they spoke against God. They knew exactly what they were doing. So really what God's telling Moses to do is remind them 
that their words count and since they spoke against me and talked about dying in the wilderness, bingo. It's exactly the way it'll be. I don't want to uh, take too much time to read through this stuff. Skip down with me to verse 39. And Moses told these things unto all the children of Israel and the people mourned greatly. What are they crying about? They brought it on themselves. Now, it's human nature to want to blame somebody else for what we do and what, how we mess up. I get that. But there's no surprise here. Moses just says to the children of Israel, well, okay. God says you can have it your way. You said you'd rather die in the wilderness than take the promised land. So here we go. But notice what they did. Verse 40, and they rose up early in the morning and got them up unto the top of the mountain saying, Lo, we be here. We will go up unto the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. In other words, when they hear what's really going to happen as a result of their unbelief, they said, we'll go fight. No, really, just have a do-over. Just, just act like yesterday didn't matter. Let's just act like it never happened. We're ready to go. But Moses says, Wherefore now do you transgress the commandment of the Lord? But it shall not prosper. Go not up, for the Lord is not among you, that you be not smitten before your enemies. Verse 44, but they presumed to go up anyway unto the hilltop. Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. Then the Amalekites came down and the Canaanites which dwell in that hill and smote them and discomfited them even unto Hormah. Now, I want you to notice something about this, folks. When they hear from Moses the words that God commanded him to say to the people, which were something along the lines of, okay, well, God heard what you said about dying in the wilderness and your children being a prey and all that other kind of stuff. God heard you, and he says he's going to do exactly what you said. Then all of a sudden, the people say, wait a minute. Maybe that's not such a good idea after all. Let's go take them. Let's go against the enemy. And Moses clearly says, don't do it. God's not with you. You're only doing it because of what I told you the the consequences of your actions, of your words would be. Faith doesn't work like that. And there's something else that you need to be aware of, folks. And that is, it doesn't work this way in every case. It doesn't work this way in every area. But there are windows of opportunity that God gives us. There are windows of opportunity that God provides for us. And in those windows of opportunity, if we're willing to take the word of God, to take the promises of God and move forward, no matter what it looks like to us, no matter how big the enemy looks, no matter how impossible the situation appears to be, whatever. If we're willing at that point when the opportunity is there to step through and stand on God's word, God will do spectacular things for our for us and on our behalf. But I can't tell you how many times I've seen people miss those windows of opportunity and then later want to try to use them. Later they want to try to make it like it was when the opportunity was there and they destroy their lives, either financially, physically, or whatever. What does that mean? That means, now, now let me back up and let me, let me add again. It's not this way in every area. It's not this way when it comes to salvation, meaning the new birth. Thank God that's not the case. 
If it was the case, then all you'd have to do is reject Jesus one time and that was it. Your opportunity would be over. But people hear and reject, hear and reject, hear and reject over and over again, talking about rejecting Jesus and the sacrifice he made for us. And then finally, some way, somehow, God gets through to them and they accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior. And it's always available to them, no matter how many times they've rejected in the past. Same thing's true for the promises of God that belong to every one of us. The promises of prosperity, for example, belong to every Christian. It's a part of what Jesus paid for. It doesn't matter where you are in your financial situation. When you begin to tithe, when you begin to give because the word says so, it begins to work. Even if you've missed other opportunities that God was trying to bring you increase. So it doesn't work this way in every situation. But I've seen a lot of situations where people let that window of opportunity pass. And then it closes. And then they realize after the fact that God was trying to do something to bless them or to help them, not trying to get something from them. And they try to make it work then and it won't work. If God could always be figured out, if God was always the same and operated the same way in every situation, then he would cease to be God. Because the very nature of God and his omnipotence and his omniscience means that we'll never have the brains, the ability to figure out everything. Even 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that gifts of the Spirit, manifestations of the Holy Ghost, operate according to diversities. There are different ways the Holy Ghost will operate. There are different ways the Holy Ghost will manifest himself. Let me give you a couple of quick examples and I hope you see it. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus says to the disciples, let's go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He goes in the back part of the ship and lays down and goes to sleep. Well, halfway across the, the sea, a great storm of wind comes up. The waves get high and start splashing over into the ship. The disciples are trying to bail water as fast as they can. It doesn't look like it's working. looks like they're going to go under. So one of them goes back and wakes Jesus up and says, Master, you better wake up. We're about to perish. Well, you always want to be awake for when you're about to be destroyed. Just (laughs) principle of life. Remember what Jesus did. Jesus stood up in the front part of the ship, rebuked the wind, and the storm ceased. He turns to his disciples and says, why have you no faith? Which indicates to me, I don't see any other way to interpret this. That indicates to me that we have the authority. They had the authority to rebuke the wind and the waves too. And the, the basis for that authority is Jesus said, let's go to the other side. He didn't say, let's go halfway out here and drown. So the fact that the will of God has been expressed through Jesus' words and actions, who always did the will of the Father, by saying, let us go on to the other side. They had the authority. They had a foundation to make it safely. But do you remember in Acts chapter 27 when Paul's journey to Rome involved a storm? Why didn't Paul rebuke the storm? He didn't have it on his own to do. Somebody as sensitive to the Holy Ghost as Paul was who looked for the leading of the Spirit of God into what sounds or cities he went in to preach would certainly have been open to the direction of the Lord 
or the prompting of the Holy Ghost to rebuke the storm. But that's not the way that storm worked. That storm went on for over two weeks, probably closer to three. And Paul finally, after two weeks into the storm, Paul finally stood up and said, well, you know, you guys should have listened to me when I told you not to depart. It was too late to sail. He said, but don't worry, we'll all be saved because the angel of the Lord stood by me this night and told me that we'd make it through. Well, why didn't the angel tell him to rebuke the storm like Jesus did? Doesn't always work that way. Acts chapter 16 talks about Paul being in the city of Philippi. He speaks words of deliverance to the little fortune teller girl in the marketplace. Cast the spirit out of her. Apparently, this was something the Holy Ghost prompted him to do. It tells us that Paul was grieved in the spirit and then took action. I see that as a prompting of the Holy Ghost. But the Bible says she did that many days. If Paul's operating under his own authority, why didn't he do it on day one? Why did he let many days go by? Now, I don't know how many many is. But I would guess it's more than a few, wouldn't you? But there came a point where Paul was grieved in his spirit about this thing. So he spoke to the evil spirit that was in possessing this little girl. And he cast it out. Well, when the masters of the little slave girl found out their opportunity for money through fortune telling was gone. They started a riot. Brought Paul before the magistrate of the city. Didn't accuse him of anything according to what really happened. He said, these men being Jews teach customs that are not lawful for us Romans to adhere to. So he stirred up a riot. They stirred up a riot. The magistrates had Paul and Silas beaten and thrown into the inner prison. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that everybody's prison doors opened. Everybody's bands fell off their hands and their feet. And Paul was delivered. But Paul was in jail a bunch of other times. This is the only time where that type of deliverance occurred. Now you tell me, assuming that was the first time Paul was in prison in Philippi, where there's a Greek say Philippi. If that was the first time Paul was in prison and that's the way God delivered him, what do you think happened the next time they got thrown in prison? What would you have done? I would have said, hey, we know how this prison stuff works. Let's sing hymn number 102. (laughs) But we have no record of Paul being delivered from prison in the same way in any other case. Some storms can be rebuked. Others have to be ridden through. Some jails can be opened. Some jails have to be gone through. It's just the nature of things, folks. Brother Hagin told a story. Well, actually, he rarely told this together. There were three different people in a six-week period of time that had terminal cancer. All of them were women. And there was only one occasion where I heard him say that these things were in that same close proximity. I've heard him tell the stories, the individual stories, numerous times. But I never knew until he was talking to about... to. Uh, a few people privately, and one of them was me. I never understood where they were in timeline. But it was within a six-week period of time, he got 
these three people delivered and healed by the power of God. The first one, he was commanded by the Lord as they stood around the lady's bedside praying. The Lord told him, go stand at the the head of the bed and cast out the spirit of doubt and fear. So he did. He resisted a little bit, wanted to make sure it was God, but when he was sure, he went to the head of the bed and he said, come out of her, you unclean spirit of doubt and fear. She was immediately healed, instantly healed. There was another lady, just a couple of weeks later, in another town, another state really, that he visited at the pastor's request. And so he visited her and he talked to her about the word of God. He had no leading from the Holy Ghost. Same type of cancer or close enough together to where you might assume that the the way that it worked the first time would work this this time. But he didn't have any direction from the Holy Ghost on what to do or how to do it. So he just tried to get the, the word of God into her, started telling her what the word says, and she accepted it. She said, yeah, Brother Hagin, I see that. I believe that. I believe that's true. So he laid hands on her. She had wasted away to nothing by that time. Just 80 pounds, skin and bones, really. And so he laid hands on her, and the power of God came on her. Brother Hagin left the room. Brother Hagin, the pastor, left the room. The the pastor's wife and his wife stayed with her. She got up out of bed, got dressed, came down in the backyard and had lunch with them. Instantly healed. The third one, which was just a couple of weeks later. He went into the room at the pastor's request. He didn't have any leading of God to cast anything out of the woman. Didn't have any prompting of the Holy Ghost to do anything except what he did the first time or with the second woman, which was tell her what the word says and try to get her to take hold of it by faith. She said pretty much the same thing as the second one had. I see that, Brother Hagin. I believe Jesus died for my sins and my sicknesses. So I believe I received my healing in Jesus' name. Well, she wasn't instantly healed. She was healed, but it was over a period of time. Now, I want to ask you a question. Which of those three examples was God in? Which of those three examples would be considered more highly rated according to what God wants? We can't make that call, folks. We look at things from a physical standpoint, from a natural standpoint. We look at things and think that instant results is God's best. Well, instant results are our best. But are they God's? Remember what Moses said to God about the children of Israel? He said, let the power of the Lord be great according to what you've spoken. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy. Would that power of God to be long-suffering and of great mercy be greater or less? than the power that he, would u- be, that he would use and was pre- preparing to use, I guess, to destroy the children of Israel. Which way is the way God would have shown the greater power of God? I can't make that call, can you? They're both God. Things don't always work the same ways. There are some things that come easily, some things that come quickly. Some things have to be walked through. I don't know why. But I know that for the people that are walking through those things, it's real easy to lose objectivity. It's real easy to come to the place where you're saying, now, Lord, 
I know I'm doing right. I know I'm believing the word. I'm walking in peace and I'm not anxious about anything. I'm doing everything that your word says makes faith work. How come it's taking so long? You can get to the place where you're blaming God for the results. And that's a step into deception. I'm sure Paul, certainly knowing the story of Jesus rebuking the wind and the storm ceasing, I'm sure Paul would have a lot rathered walk up to the front of the ship and say, peace be still. Storm cease. And everybody that looked on would say, wow, what a display of God's power. But it was the same and an equal display of God's power to preserve everybody through the storm. Do you hear what I'm saying? Now, there's one other thing I want to share. And I uh, purposely cut down my notes about a th- into about a third of what I originally had. Whenever I go away like this, I always come back and preach till too late. You thought I was too late already, didn't you? Well, some did, anyway. But I've got a witness of the Holy Ghost. I've thought a lot about how to say this. I didn't get this in words. But I have a witness of the Holy Ghost. So you judge it. You accept it for whatever you think it's worth. And in order to do that, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Here's a story we referred to about Paul in jail, Paul and Silas in jail in Philippi. Their backs are bleeding. Their hands and their feet are in stocks and chains. Verse 25, it says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. You see that? Verse 26 is what I want you to see. Here's the thing that the Lord's dealing with me about. It says, and suddenly, everybody say suddenly. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. Now, what did Paul and Silas do? They prayed and sang praises. Would singing praises qualify as speaking words? Well, what do you think they're singing praises about? Maybe we ought to back up and ask the the previous question first. And that is, what were they praying about? What would you be praying about? I'd be praying about getting out of prison. Now, remember the reason that they're there. The reason that they're there is because Paul is forbidden by the Holy Ghost to go into Asia. Then the Holy Ghost suffers him not to go into Bithynia. And so they go to bed overnight, and Paul has a vision in the night or a dream or something along that line where he sees a man from, uh, from Macedonia, which Philippi was the chief city of Macedonia, the region called Macedonia. He has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. So he shares the vision with the group, Silas included, the next morning. And they assuredly gathered, the scripture says, that God wanted them to go into Macedonia. We don't know that Paul ever found that guy in the vision. He goes to Philippi and he finds a a woman who gives her heart to the Lord. So they're there supernaturally. 
They're there because they've been led by the Holy Ghost in a supernatural manner. I'm pretty sure they were aware that God did not bring them to Philippi for them to spend all their time in jail. I equally am convinced that there were some marvelous opportunities on the part of both Paul and Silas to wonder if that vision had been real. It'd be easy to conclude or it'd be easy to get in the line of reasoning that if this vision had really been right, we would not have run into this trouble and been imprisoned, much less beaten and so forth. Had they lost their objectivity based on that line of reasoning, they could have been led in deception just like anybody else. But the indication to me from what the scripture says is that they knew they were where God wanted them to be. They've gotten people saved. They got this little girl delivered. And so they're praying. They may even be praying, Lord, what's the next step? And whatever it is, we sure can't do it from inside this jail. And then when they began to sing praises, that's an indication to me that they believed something was already done as far as God was concerned. That's an indication to me that they're thanking God for the end of their captivity so that they can reach the people God wanted to reach. And it brought about sudden results. I've got a witness from the Holy Ghost that we're entering into a time of suddenlies. Now, I don't claim to know what all that means, but there are a couple of things that I want to bring to your attention that are going on in the world around us. I don't try to read the tea leaves on everything. I don't think that everything that happens, certainly not everything that's reported in, in the news, is, um, has spiritual significance. I'll say it that way. But there are a couple of things that have caught my attention that have been going on over the last several weeks. This thing in Hollywood, look how suddenly things are changing. One of the greatest industries of influencing mankind. And now it's been exposed for sexual misconduct. It's spreading with more accusations and claims of sexual misconduct. And the people that were in power just a month ago are scrambling to try to hold on to crumbs, bits and pieces of what they once had. Who would have predicted that? Another thing that's happening around us is this NFL thing. The kneeling for the flag or kneeling during the anthem that some of these spoiled brat idiots I got an idea let them go get real jobs but that's my my point that's my soapbox that's not my point there is a difference but folks the NFL used to own Sunday now you tell me What industry, what business, what anything has ever occupied their own day of the week? The NFL for years 
owned Sunday. They don't seem to anymore. And look how quick that happened. There are other things that we saw in the news having been out of the country in Europe over the last several weeks that aren't even being reported on over here. I mean, there are some things that I tried to Google to find out what's uh, the latest information. You can't even find it on the Internet. Concerning other countries and the changes that are taking place and the elections that are taking place and the people that are being elected and the reasons why they're being elected and the secessions of certain parts of certain countries and There's a whole bunch of stuff. Things are happening suddenly. Things are happening suddenly. Because remember what God said to Moses. As truly as I live, saith the Lord, the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. We need to prepare ourselves. We need to believe for suddenlies. And let me make one other point about something I said earlier. What makes the difference in somebody that takes the window of opportunity and steps through by faith into the window of opportunity and those that miss it? Let me ask it this way. What makes the difference between recognizing that the opportunity is God and failing to recognize it? That's really the issue. Who's not going to take an opportunity that they know is God? I would suggest that those people are few and far between. But what, in my experience, is the majority of the cases that I know of, people aren't walking close enough to God to know that it's Him. So what does that mean? That means we need to be prepared ahead of time for a sudden opportunity to arise. It's prior preparation that causes us to be ready for those windows of opportunity. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We love you. We appreciate your word, Father. We thank you for the life of God that's within us. Father, we thank you that the life of God permeates every fiber of our being, every cell of our bodies. Your presence, and only your presence, Is what we rely on. Your word and only your word. Is the foundation for our Christian walk. Father let us be Caleb's and Joshua's. Even when everybody else around us is going the other way. Help us to see and recognize the opportunities that are given to us. Those things which are of you. Help us Lord to prepare. And even believe for suddenlies according to your will, your plan, and your purpose. We thank you, Father, that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus that dwells in us, your life, has set us free from the law of sin and death. We thank you, Father, that your word is true, that we're more than conquerors. We are victorious in the name of Jesus. We stand upon your word. Your word never fails. And this even, your word, is even and our faith in your word is the victory that overcometh the world. We declare, Father, that we are who you say we are. We believe you can do what you said you would do. 
we thank you, Father, that the glory of the Lord shall be seen and known in all the earth. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. Folks, don't forget where we started with this, and that's words. Remember what God said was the unchanging and eternal principle. As you have spoken in his ear, so shall he do unto you. Hallelujah. Folks, that couldn't be more real or more true than if Jesus appeared here in the flesh, in a vision, an open vision, where we saw him, we heard him, could have felt him if we got close enough. If he had said, from this point forward, I'll do everything you say. That's what that promise from God is. God will deal with you according to what you speak. Let's lift our hands and thank God for being so good. We love you, Father. We magnify you. We bless your word. We thank you that you sent your word and healed us. We thank you that the gospel, the word of God, is the power of God to save, to heal, to to deliver unto every one of us. We love you, Father. Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.